what is your life like now? Pretty quiet, laid back. Don't do much. Stay home a lot. Did you feel like losing that time in your relationships with friends and family was difficult? The, the babies that were uh, babies when I went in or were born during the time I was in, yeah, we didn't. I didn't have a chance to bond with them at all. You know how important as far as bonding goes, that first three years plays a major part in uh, that bonding process. What other things have been difficult since you got out? Uh, socializing. I guess because I don't want to uh, have to, you know, uh, get serious in a relationship and have to tell them all of my past. So, yeah, um, that has been hard. In the last episode, we left Sherman Townsend at a pivotal juncture. He had just taken a deal offered by Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman. Get out of prison now, and we'll have you re-sentenced to time served. But you have to drop your appeal. Sherman was waiting to find out if Judge Deborah Hedlund would grant him a new trial. He thought she might because the chief witness who testified against him 10 years ago had now come forward and confessed to the crime himself. But as we're learning time and time again with the process of trying to prove yourself innocent, Sherman knew he had no guarantees. He took the deal. And we never found out whether Judge Hedlund would have granted him a new trial. I did manage to track her down and ask her that question. But we'll come back to that. Sherman is 70 now and has COPD, a lung disease. He works as a janitor, and it's hard to put away enough money for retirement. When I talked to him, he was still working through the pandemic, when many people were able to stay home and stay safe. Losing 10 years to prison sets you back. And taking a deal meant he had lost any possibility of seeking compensation from the state. I've been working on the same job for uh, just coming up on 13 years. And uh, now I'm 70, my health, my physicalness isn't uh, nowhere near what it used to be. So uh, I really need to be retired, but can't even think about doing that right now. Sherman says if there's something that would make his situation better, it's if the state would pay him what he would have earned in Social Security over the 10 years he was locked up. But because he isn't exonerated, that's not an option. Sherman took his case to the Minnesota Board of Pardons in 2013. He was denied. Sherman still wonders if he did the right thing, taking the deal. Um, yeah, I just think I gave up too much. <laughs> If you didn't listen to the previous episode, I'm going to ask you to stop, go back, and check it out. You'll want to hear Sherman's story before you go any further. Because in today's episode, we're going to take a look at this deal Sherman was offered and ask some questions. Like, how often do prosecutors do this? Is it legal? And the much tougher question, is it right? I'm Emily Havick, and this is Record of Wrong. In this podcast, we're taking a look at how hard it is to get unconvicted once you've been found guilty, if you can really ever be proven innocent again, and the tools that the system uses to keep you locked up and throw away the key. Sherman's situation may seem like a one-off right in the middle of litigation, 
represented by top innocence project lawyers, new evidence admitted at a crucial point of decision, and offered a deal so good that it's almost impossible to pass up. But new data that's just being gathered now by Keith Findlay in Wisconsin shows deals like this are not unusual. One of the things that um, innocence advocates have noticed over the years is that not always, but sometimes prosecutors, when confronted with very powerful evidence of innocence, go to great lengths to try to preserve the convictions, um, including making plea offers that are essentially so good that um, it's hard to turn them down, even for an innocent individual. Keith Finley is a professor of law at the University of Wisconsin Law School. He co-founded the Wisconsin Innocence Project and was the co-director for years. Now he teaches on criminal law, evidence, and wrongful convictions. Finley knew about deals like this anecdotally, but he wanted to know how common are they. He reached out to all of the Innocence Projects in the country and asked them to provide data from all the cases they've litigated in the past 10 years where they have developed new evidence of innocence. He wanted to see how the prosecutors responded in those cases, if they offered deals, and what those deals looked like. He gathered 272 cases. What Finley found was that these plea deals are not an anomaly. In fact, prosecutors offered them 64 times. That's almost a quarter of the time. In most cases, the defendants took the deals. Remember, as a category, this is a group of people who already put their faith in the trial process and lost once. So why would they have any faith that they would fare any better the second time, right? So you can see why these kinds of very generous plea offers, even for stone-cold individuals, are going to be really, really tempting. Um, It's going to take only the bravest, the most risk-tolerant individuals um, who are going to be willing to test the system a second time after having tried it and lost once already. And even though a quarter of the time may not seem like that much, what the data is telling us is this. These deals are a regular tool in a prosecutor's toolkit. They're a routine, even commonplace response to new evidence of innocence. And they are just one more way a prosecutor can preserve a conviction when their case is being challenged. Another striking takeaway from Keith's data is this. Aside from the cases that are still pending, when there was no deal, an incredible 86% of the defendants in all of these cases ended up winning. They had their convictions vacated, or there was a finding of innocence, or the case against them was dismissed. But in close to two-thirds of these same cases, prosecutors sought to preserve a conviction even though the data shows they were on the losing end most of the time. So in the vast majority, the defendant has a winning case, but also in the majority, the prosecutors fight to keep them convicted. I think it's also important to point out that in about one-third of all 272 cases, the prosecutors joined or did not oppose the motion, basically siding with the defendant. That's no small percentage. So there are plenty of times when prosecutors recognize there's a weakness in the case, and they stop fighting to preserve that conviction. Now, plea deals are a common fixture of our criminal justice system. We're more familiar with the ones that are offered before a trial, and there are advocates who believe they're fundamentally flawed. Scholars have long theorized that plea bargaining has what they call an innocence problem. And that is that the problem is that um, 
prosecutors bent on obtaining a conviction have so much discretion um, and so much power to threaten really onerous sentences um, that they can stack up the charges, um, make the risks of going to trial very, uh, very ominous, uh, and then induce a plea, even from an innocent person, by making the offer so relatively uh, mild that um, a rational person would have a hard time uh, rejecting it. What concerns Keith Findlay about these deals in particular, the ones offered to people litigating a claim of innocence, is he thinks prosecutors are tipping their hand. Findlay explained one traditional model of plea bargaining to me, and it goes like this. The prosecution and the defense look at the case, the likelihood that they'll win or lose, and how much time the person might serve, and they split the difference. 80% chance of conviction and a potential 10-year sentence, the prosecutor might offer eight years. Now, of course, that's a very simplified model, a very simplified description of it, but that's sort of essentially uh, the theory as to how bargaining uh, works. The reason that that's important is because if you then look at prosecutors in murder cases who are offering plea bargains to time served, that is to zero additional incarceration. Finley found in his research that the deals offered in these cases were, quote, uniformly steep. In the great majority, they were for time served. In other words, the defendant would get out of prison immediately. What that's suggesting is when they assess the likelihood of conviction given the new evidence of innocence, they bargain it all the way down to zero. That suggests an assessment by the prosecutor um, that at least in some of these cases, the prosecutor knows the case is incredibly thin, that the chances of conviction are very remote, and that in fact they may be dealing with an actually innocent person, and yet they proceed to try to preserve the conviction by making this kind of plea offer. The problem for the defendant here is the problem Sherman faced. Even if they think they might have a winning case, they've already taken their chances with the system once and lost. For most, as the data shows, the risk is too great. They accept the deals. So the system has just beat them down and beat them down and beat them down. And then a prosecutor says to him, you can leave tomorrow, right? And you're not going to be on probation. You're not going to answer to a probation officer. It will stay on your record, but maybe you have a little criminal record anyhow, right? That's Julie Jonas again, the legal director of the Great North Innocence Project. Julie said she's seen multiple cases like Sherman's, where a prosecutor will let someone out, either with a deal or by deciding not to retry them, but say publicly that they still believe the person is guilty. I think it's prosecutorial face-saving, right? You, you spent time convicting this person. Now this person went to prison for five years or 10 years. Perhaps you talked to the victim. You have lended comfort and solace to them, right? I think it's very, very hard for a prosecutor to go back and say, whoops, we made a mistake. Um, so instead they say, well, we still actually think we were right the first time, but we can't retry him because we don't have the evidence anymore. But is it ethical to offer someone a plea deal if you know that you don't have the evidence? Well, <laughs> um, that, I would say no. I would say no, it's not. That there is a, um, you know, prosecutors under our ethical responsibilities as lawyers are supposed to be ministers of justice. And are you acting as a minister of justice if you offer someone a plea deal knowing that you don't have the evidence going forward? However, 
I think it happens all the time and not just in, in post-conviction innocence cases. I think it happens pre-trial all the time. You know, the prosecutor believes that, you know, knows that they probably at this moment don't have the evidence or really questions their evidence. But they also believe that if the person pleads guilty and takes the deal, well, then they are in fact guilty. So, you know, they think they're wearing the white hats. Of course, we think we're wearing the white hats, right? You know, they, they think if someone takes the deal, then, then they were right and the person must be guilty and they've, they've protected public safety. And in many cases, they're right. But is that how we want our system to be? Is it? To answer that question, I went to one of Minnesota's top prosecutors, the state attorney general, Keith Ellison. He's one of the people who actually has the power to shape the way Minnesota approaches wrongful convictions. I asked him what he thinks about someone being offered this kind of a deal. Here's what he had to say. I don't have any quick answers. What I will say is that if I was in prison for a crime that I knew I didn't commit, but somebody said, if you say you did, if you plead guilty, we'll let you out today. And if I had already been away from my family for 12, 13 years, and if I was looking at 12, 13, 14 more years to go, would I just say, yeah, I did it just to get out? I think a lot of people probably would do that. But that undermines the system and it undermines the truth. And it's bad. But can you blame an individual? I mean, I think the real problem is, you know, those of us who are in a position to prosecute might want to ask, you know, is, are we doing this thing the right way? You know, because some people think, well, if this guy gets out, it's going to embarrass us. Um, And so rather than we want to avoid the embarrassment of a wrongful conviction and the liability associated with a wrongful conviction and just sort of like covered up by hoping that the defendant just takes a deal. Both Attorney General Ellison and Keith Finley, the researcher who gathered this data, talked about something called confirmation bias that can work its way into any case making it hard for prosecutors to see when the evidence may have become too thin. An ethical prosecutor is not going to prosecute a case in which they believe the person is innocent, right? And so they have to say, if they're going to offer a plea bargain, they have to say that they believe the person's guilty. Otherwise, it's absolutely inexcusable to be proceeding with with a plea offer. Now, it may be that they sincerely believe that. It may be also various cognitive biases are at work here. Things like confirmation bias, which suggests that when an individual reaches a conclusion, they will naturally, and this is not a reflection of them as bad people, it's just a reflection that they are people. This is the way people work, right? That when they reach a conclusion, you will naturally seek, remember, and interpret all subsequent data in ways that are consistent with your interpretation. There's a related phenomenon called belief perseverance, where once a person forms a conclusion, they will subconsciously work very hard to hold on to that conclusion and undermine evidence that challenges it. Even to the point that when a conclusion is reached on the basis of a certain set of facts, and then those facts are demonstrably, unequivocally shown to be false, so that the basis for the conclusion is completely undermined, people will naturally work hard to find other ways to prop up that conclusion. So what happens when a prosecutor is convinced of someone's guilt, but no longer has the evidence to prove it, like Mike Freeman admitted after the deal was done with Sherman Townsend? 
The way our system works is that until you're convicted, you're entitled to a presumption of innocence. And the only way that our system can determine whether somebody is guilty or innocent is to go through the process of going through trial and having the prosecutor prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, or the defendant waives the trial and pleads guilty. Short of that, the person is entitled to a presumption of innocence. And so for a prosecutor to, to publicly say, I believe this person is guilty, but I can't prove it, is a failure to abide by one of the most basic tenets of our legal system and is really an, an unfairness to an individual who is just as entitled to that presumption of innocence as you or I. Mike Freeman declined to speak with me about Sherman's case, so I don't know how he feels now about that deal. I asked the state attorney general, Allison, should deals like this even be allowed? I'll give you a heads up. His response is kind of long, but I think it's important to hear the whole thing. You know what? I, I need to think. I've been dealing with this for 30 years and I don't know and I don't have a good answer because if I'm the defendant facing all that time and you telling me the door's open, say the magic words. Do I want that to not be an option? Am I willing to do 20 more years for the sake of me saying whatever the state wants me to say? I don't know that. And I think it's, it's one of those situations where it's a heck of a lot easier to stand in judgment than it is to make that decision. And so I think that we just got to grapple with it. We just got to re- grapple with it. You know, because you might have a prosecutor who says, you know, look, I believe the guy did it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he's not as culpable as his co-defendants, but I believe he was there. He's saying he wasn't. I tell you what, I'll do. I'll let. I'll give. I'll let him out. But he's got to say he did it, because I believe he did it. And so, what is that? Should that be off? Should that be not legal to do? I don't know. Um, I know that it's a hard situation, and um, I know that freedom is a precious thing. People go to great lengths to get it. And so I guess you're leaving me with the tough questions that I don't have a good answer for. But I think we need to really dig into it. And we need lawyers and we need community members. We need ethicists. We need all kind of folks to dig in and help us get us to the right answer. Of course, the question that I still had after talking with Sherman about the deal he took was, what would have happened if he'd said no? Would he have won a retrial? Could he have had his name entirely cleared if he'd just held out a little longer? The data we just looked at gives him pretty good odds. I tracked down Judge Deborah Headland. She's retired now and has moved out of state. She agreed to read over the transcript of the hearing where David Jones confessed and some of the other documents from the case to refresh her memory. She didn't want to go on tape, but she talked to me on the phone. Here's what she told me. She had reservations about David Jones being the real culprit. She, like the prosecutors, suspected that he and Sherman could have cooked this story up while in prison. But she still thinks she might have granted that new trial. And here's why. She says the county attorney's office made an egregious mistake by not uncovering the fact that David Jones, their star witness, had felony convictions in Illinois. She said she wonders if that's why the prosecutors offered a plea deal, to avoid further inquiry into that mistake. Now, when I read the trial transcript, I found a troubling section that showed this issue could have come to light before Sherman was ever convicted. 
Defense attorney Stanley Nathanson is cross-examining David Jones. He has a sidebar with a judge, where he asks if he can question Jones about his criminal record. Judge Hedlund says, did you ask the prosecution for the criminal convictions of all their witnesses? Nathanson says, I most certainly did. Gary McLennan, the prosecutor, says, I don't know if we received one or not. I don't know. I have a lot of cases. They go back and forth, wondering where this request for criminal histories went. And then McLennan, the prosecutor, says, can we expedite matters by just asking him? The judge says, you can do whatever you like if you're waiving all the rules. Unfortunately, I can't hear her tone in the transcript. They ask Jones on the stand if he has a felony record. He says no, just juvenile probation. This was a lie, but no one found out until years later. And the jury never knew that Jones, the star witness accusing Sherman Townsend, was a convicted felon. The crimes he was convicted for in Illinois in the 80s and early 90s included felony theft, battery, armed robbery, and a home invasion, where he said later, under oath, he had intended to rape the woman. And after David Jones testified 10 years later, Hedlund brought this up with the assistant Hennepin County attorney, Stephen Redding. She listened to Redding's arguments about the reliability of Jones and then said, all of his testimony aside, what do you do with his prior felony conviction record? Redding replied, according to the transcript, I, that's a really, without a question, your honor, a regrettable circumstance. I have no, there's nothing I can say to this court other than it certainly should have been brought out. He goes on to say that he doesn't think it's enough on its own to grant a new trial. Hedlund continues to press him on it. You can tell from just reading the transcript that it bothers her. And Judge Hedlund still says that's what disturbs her the most about this case now. She told me this is a case that, quote, sits on the edge of a knife. But she says that if there's any doubt in this kind of a situation, it would have gone in favor of the defendant. It would have been interesting, she told me. But of course, we never found out. When I talked to Sherman, he was very mild-mannered. He comes across as a humble, quiet man. But the one time he got upset was talking about David Jones' record. And he wasn't mad at Jones. He was just mad that no one caught all his lies. Man, told you he did the crime. He described to you how he did it and everything else, you know? Plus, plus, they had used him as this stand-up, upright person testifying against me. And... As Julian then found out later, this boy had a record too. And he did have a crime similar to this one. I don't know, that when they found out he testified and he did have a record and lied all the whole time. He lied on me, he lied on the stand, he lied everything. And they're saying, oh, it's okay, we're letting it stand. Sherman's story contains a recurring theme of his past convictions haunting him. That's why he's frustrated, because his record was used against him while the past of the state's chief witness remained a secret. Sherman was seen by law enforcement as a career criminal. That's why the police officer pinned him as a suspect right away. His sentence was doubled because of his priors. And the judge told me she heard he had been picked up again in Dinkytown after his release. But Minnesota court records show Sherman has not been convicted of a single crime since he was let out in 2007. He told me whenever he hears about burglaries in that same Dinkytown neighborhood, he gets scared. I'm always afraid. Like they had this fool out here uh, 
break it in now not too long ago. It's a few months ago here. Those kind of crimes uh, bother me out here in southeast Minneapolis because I always think, oh, my name probably the first name in that thing. Something like that, you know. But they caught the dude that was doing this, doing these last series out here. It kind of took a burden off my mind. You know? If they can convict me wrong at once, they can do it twice. <laughs> In the next episode, we're going to meet a man who was convicted of a murder a quarter century after the victim's death. And like Sherman, a decade into his appeals, he was offered a deal. But in his case, there are still people who believe there was never a murder to begin with. Next time on Record of Wrong. We searched 100 yards each side of that location, looking for any kind of weaponry, um, any kind of indication of vehicle had stopped, any kind of footprint, and we found nothing. I think it turned into a situation where someone had to be found guilty in this case. And I was the only one left. There's just no way any sane person in Terry's position would have remained incarcerated for the next, you know, four to five years, you know, when they were dangling freedom on the end of the string. This is Record of Wrong, a CARE 11 original podcast. Check out recordofwrong.com for more information about the cases we cover. Record of Wrong is reported and produced by me, Emily Havick, with editor Rita Butero. Original music is by Dave Mailing and me. Dave Mailing also did our mixing and mastering. Original artwork by David Malman. Special thanks to Lauren Olson, Janine Vogelar, and other CARE 11 management and staff for their contributions, and to the people who shared their stories with us.